Open in your Bibles to the uh, book that talks about the shortest man in the Bible, Nehemiah. <laughs> oh, man, it's, it's sad that we still laugh at things like that. But anyway, otherwise known as Nehemiah, we're studying uh, the book of Nehemiah. It comes after Ezra. We're taking Ezra and Nehemiah as a block. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that these should only be one book. Uh, especially in the, the Jewish realm, they find that this is one book, written by two separate authors, obviously, but it tells a continuous story. Either way, we're in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The topic, Nehemiah is greatly moved upon hearing that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and that its gates are burned with fire. The title of our message, The Gate Awakening. Let's have a word of prayer. It's really very appropriate. It's a perfect title. It's not a funny title, but it is a perfect title. Points for perfection. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, giving us this record by Nehemiah of this time in history, the history of your people, Israel. And as excited as we are to learn about that, Lord, and see how you dealt with them, we, we are even more excited to have your Holy Spirit make application of these words to us. We don't want to go too far and claim things that don't belong to us, Lord, but we don't want to miss anything either about your love and character and goodness. And so guide us, be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. amen. Superheroes, Marvel calls them enhanced. DC labels them metahumans. They have amazing abilities, and as Earth's mightiest heroes, they fight the battles that we never could. Christians can fall into a superhero mindset, but not the kind you might think. We assume that someone else, another believer, someone with greater spiritual abilities is going to step up and serve the Lord. Maybe you've heard the saying, God isn't looking for our ability, just our availability. It's been around for a long time. I understand the point it's making, but I, I want to change it. This is a work in progress, but so far this is what I've got. God doesn't require our ability, but our availability in our inability. Inability, I think, is the most important part. I know it's cumbersome. I'll get there. <laughs> Bible hero after Bible hero claimed inability, but God called them anyway. Moses provides the textbook example. While he was at work one day, God tapped him to be Israel's deliverer. Moses argued with God that his inability to speak well should disqualify him. He ultimately impolitely asked God to find someone else. Uh, God overruled him and used him nonetheless. Nehemiah was a normal guy going about his daily life in Persia, working for the government. One day, almost out of nowhere, he was called upon to become both a warrior and a building contractor, things that he had no ability to perform that we know of, certainly out of his uh, job description, as we'll see later. Now, this kind of thing can, and it actually should, happen to us. As we go about our daily routine, despite our perceived inabilities, God taps us to be used by him. I'm going to organize my comments around two points. Number one, your eyes can be suddenly opened to see the need. Number two, your heart can be seriously burdened to meet the need. Let's talk about our eyes being opened in verses one through four. In the church, are there enhanced elect? Are there metahuman ministers? Well, we're not supers, as Mr. Incredible calls them, but at the same time, if you are in Christ, think about it, 
You are enhanced, are you not, by the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, living in you? What greater enhancement could there be than having God living in you? You are metahuman in that you are empowered to do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You might not be able to leap over a tall building with a single bound, but you don't really need to either. All the things you need to do, you're empowered to do. You can't see it, but you're clothed with the robe of righteousness, and you walk in the power of the resurrection of Jesus. You are, therefore, always available for any need God brings to your attention. If you are in Christ, Jesus assumes your availability, and he ignores your inability. And that's one of the things I don't like about the quote, because it makes it sound like all you have to do is say, all right, Lord, I know you really need me, so I'll make myself available to you. You're already available to the Lord. And if you say no to him, then you're disobeying. And he doesn't care about your inability. Look at me. <laughs> Look up spiritual inability in a dictionary and my picture is there. <laughs> the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. I don't know why I have to say this. I shouldn't, but... That always reminds me of uh, in uh, Finding Nemo where they, they talk about Mount Wanahakalugi. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> what happened to Pastor Gene? <laughs> it came to pass in the month of Chislev. That reminds me of nothing, so thankful there. And in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel. Now we've read ahead, so we know that Nehemiah held an important position in the service of the king of Persia. And it's too bad, really, that we know that because Nehemiah went out of his way to keep his position a secret as long as he could until the very last words of chapter one. He presented himself as an average, everyday believer. He was a regular Jew who, as it turns out, happened to be in the service of King Artaxerxes. But he doesn't want to start with what an important person he was. He was just a Jew answering God's call. God has his ways of positioning you, of stationing you. In the New Testament, Philip was told to go hang out along the side of the road. Along came an Ethiopian, uh, Ethiopian government official. Philip shared the Lord with him and he baptized him and then that man brought the gospel to Africa. Philip was right where God wanted him to be. The particular task God had for Nehemiah required he would have close contact with the king of Persia. The particular task God has for you requires you to be right where you are. Unless you are actively running from God, you can trust that he has brought you where he wants you. And you should therefore have the anticipation that at any moment, God could use you. Verse two, Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Hanani may have been a brother, he may have been a close relative, or like they say in Riverdale, a brother from another mother. Anybody from Riverdale anymore? Yeah, little by little, we've, we've eliminated the Riverdaleans, I think. Not on purpose. Oh, no, there is one. God bless you, sister. We have a first service guy who used to live in Riverdale, and I, I told him, you can take the man out of Riverdale but you can't take Riverdale out of the man. Oh, there you are. Yeah, it's glutton for punishment. <laughs> Having just returned from a visit to Jerusalem, Nehemiah would naturally ask him and the other guys how things were going there. Uh, it's interesting, Nehemiah referred to the Jews who had returned with Zerubbabel and later with Ezra as escaped and having survived captivity. It sounds romanticized. 
as if life in Jerusalem was all rainbows and unicorns after the captivity. They escaped captivity and now we're back in the land. They survived the captivity and were settled in Jerusalem. But in verse three, they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. Some 75 years earlier, Zerubbabel had taken the first group of 50,000 released captives back, and amidst much opposition, he rebuilt the temple. Some years later, just a few years before Nehemiah, Ezra had taken a second group of 5,000 back to restore worship. There was nothing romantic about what was happening there. Things were bad, terrible even. Hanani and his companions refer to the returnees as survivors, a really bleak description. I mean, whenever there's a tragedy on you know, television news, maybe an airplane crash, they say they're searching for survivors. And, and that's you know, not an a, a easy thing to survive. And so Hanani says, hey, no, they, they're, they're survivors, and, and they're not having a very good time of it. And they were in distress, he says. They were the subjects of reproach. Now, we don't know what Nehemiah knew or didn't know prior to this report. He may not have known of the conditions in Judah and Jerusalem, or he may have known, but they had not really come into spiritual focus for him. It wasn't something that uh, was touching his life spiritually. One of the things we learn from Nehemiah is that there is timing to God's plans. I mentioned Moses earlier as God's deliverer of Israel from Egypt. When God heard the cries of his people suffering, he decided to raise up a man, Moses. But that was after 400 years of suffering. And then there was more waiting after that. Moses went to work one day in Egypt, just as he had each day for the previous 40 years. And God opened his eyes to the plight of the Jews. But Moses ended up killing an Egyptian and was forced to flee. So after 400 years, they had waited another 40 years, but now Moses was in the desert. He spent the next 40 years tending sheep before God revealed himself in the burning bush and finally sent him back to deliver Israel. And then if you were here for our studies in Exodus, you know that there was a period of, I think, about nine months when God brought plagues before he finally delivered Israel. And so to us, that looks like a waiting. It looks like a delay, but it's right on schedule for the Lord. Nehemiah met with family and friends one day, nothing out of the ordinary, except that was the day that God opened his eyes to the need that he was going to meet. You've probably gone to work one day or to meet with someone or something else only to find yourself being used by God. You're in a conversation about the Lord or something like that. It was exciting. I wonder, too, if I've missed more than one of those appointments with God, not maliciously, but just out of dullness or busyness. God wants to use us more than we know. No matter how many days or weeks or months might go by where things are mostly normal for us, be ready to be used by God. And so verse four, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He wept, he mourned, he fasted and prayed. We're gonna see that it wasn't just an emotional response that then faded away. It wasn't something that just, you know, kicked up the emotion and then a few hours later he had forgotten about it. This was a deep spiritual response that set him on an entirely new path. Now, I don't want to give the impression this morning that we are just to sit around waiting for some spiritual lightning bolt to strike. 
As disciples in Christ, we should be pursuing him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We should be looking for things to do and people to share with. Prayer, even fasting, should be normal for us. We don't need any special touch from God to do those things. But there are also going to be special moments when your eyes are open to see a particular need and when you are being called to meet that need as a servant. It may be something that lasts a short time or for a season. It could be helping somebody and it could be over before you know it. Or it might be something that actually does put you on a path that lasts the rest of your life. You should ignore thoughts of inability or, better yet, rejoice in your inability. It's, it's kind of a cool thing to think, God can use me despite who I am. I don't know how to do hardly anything, but God can use me. We get into difficulty when we think, oh, I've got this down, this sharing of the gospel. I know exactly what I'm going to say. Or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty articulate. Or, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a handsome guy. Or anything like that. You need to rejoice in your absolute inability to accomplish anything spiritually. And that God lives in you and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You're a regular kind of guy and gal that God can and does use. Now, secondly, in verses 5 through 11, your heart can be seriously burdened to meet the need. We're going to read Nehemiah's prayer. Before we do, there's something we need to know. If we compare the dates in this chapter with those in chapter 2, we realize that Nehemiah prayed for about four months before he uh, took his petition to Artaxerxes. He didn't pray this same prayer over and over, obviously. It represents the way he prayed for over 100 days straight while intermittently fasting. And so in verse 5, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. These uh, Bible prayers, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes I feel when, when we encounter them, I feel like you do when you walk into somebody's office or into a room and people are on the phone and you think, oh, I, I, better, I better go out because they're having a phone conversation and they might not want me to listen to this. It, it's private. It's, it's a personal communique between Nehemiah and God. And, and analyzing prayer is a little like dissecting a flower. It's a good thing to do, but when you're done, you can see all the parts, but the continuity and the beauty of the flower is forever destroyed. It, it doesn't really go back together. And so we always should want to less dissect prayer and more to discover it, and we should do it reverently. So Nehemiah lifted his thoughts to heaven. That's my first observation. Prayer must therefore elevate our mind and our affections upward to the throne room of God. The things of earth must grow strangely dim in the light of God's glory and grace. Sometimes our prayer seems more tense, I think, or mine does, because I'm focused on earth thinking that God is in heaven and needs to send down help. And yet I read, Paul the Apostle says, I am already seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. So when I talk to the Lord, I should have the mental and spiritual perspective that I'm in heaven with him, as it were, and that we are looking down upon circumstances that we are not under any circumstances. You don't want to be under those. You want to be above them and have that perspective. And that's why so often your perspective changes, your heart changes, your mood changes without your circumstances ever changing. Because we have to confront the fact as believers, as honest believers, 
Some people get into situations that are never going to get any better. They're only going to get worse unless God chooses, for example, to heal. And so sickness, illness, that's a a good example. Uh, If you get some kind of long-term, chronic, uh, life-changing disease, if God chooses not to heal you, we believe he can heal you, but if he chooses not to, you don't want to be under those circumstances for the rest of your life. You have to be above them, looking down upon them from a heavenly perspective. Nehemiah was thankful God is the promise keeper. He keeps his covenant, he said, at all times, encouraging love and obedience on our part. When we fail, and we always do, we can count on his mercy, his not giving us what we deserve. Then in verse 6, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Now, there's never a time when God is deaf or blind. The words Nehemiah used are a way of expressing urgency, calling upon God to act immediately. It's like saying, hey, see and hear this right now. That's where I'm coming from. Night and day, Nehemiah prayed. He had some definite set prayer times, I'm sure. He probably prayed the way Daniel did, three times a day towards Jerusalem. That's what all devout Jews did during the exile. Uh, They would coincide with the times of the scheduled daily sacrifices. So he was probably already familiar with that kind of praying. But then it says here he also fasted. And we saw a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Ezra's fasting that something that we sometimes miss, when these guys fasted, uh, it meant that they had a lot of time that they would have spent preparing and eating meals. Um, And what they did is instead of just go about their business or have extra time during those times, they set aside that time to actually pray. And so uh, if they started at four in the afternoon, took them an hour to prepare and an hour to eat, they would go from four to six in prayer. I don't know why it is, but any time I've ever tried to fast, I end out uh, at lunch with people. Does that ever happen to you? It's just weird. You know, for some reason, you you can't get away from it. Now, I've tried all the different techniques. You know, I'll just have water today. What's the matter? Are you fasting? Right, to the moon. But anyway, uh, but I, I realize that. And I've, I, 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 look, fasting, when I get to heaven, the Lord's going to say, why didn't you fast more? And I said, well, it's a pig. But, uh, so I'm not saying I'm a big faster. But I have fasted. But I, I've never really you know, said, hey, instead of, instead of uh, you know, the time that we would be eating, let's, let's pray. I just figure you fast in the background as a general spiritual discipline. But, and, and that's fine if you want to fast and, and, and not that. But these guys, they said, hey, now I've got two, three, four hours to pray. That I, and and so, so this was a lot of sincere praying that was going on by Nehemiah. Beyond this, mentioning praying and fasting is a way of saying that his heart was burdened by the situation. He thought about it all the time. Jerusalem and its condition became his passion. I'm not sure what Nehemiah liked to do on his off time. We all have hobbies and pursuits, things that we are, like to do or mostly would rather be doing. Uh, you know, remember the bumper sticker, any day fish, the worst day fishing is better than the best day working, you know, that kind of thing. They're all the worst day fishing for me. I'm just the worst fisherman in the world. But uh, I, I like coffee. I don't know if I've ever told you that before. 
I actually don't drink as much coffee as you think. I have a cup in the morning when I wake up. So do you. Uh, I have a mid-morning coffee and a late afternoon coffee, and then I don't drink coffee after three. And some of those coffees, they're this big. They're Turkish coffee or espresso or some other concoction that I'm trying to come up with. But I, I love making the different ways of making coffee. So I thought, I wonder how many different ways I have of making coffee. I have 40 at home and 10 here. And, and just different devices, mostly cheap, you know, mostly found in dumpster diving. No, that's not true. But over the years, I mean, there's just so many fun ways of making coffee. There's, you know, uh, mocha pots and there's little ibrics and jezves. There's, uh, you know, espresso, the AeroPress. It just goes on and on. And each one gives you a little bit different flavor. I'll tell you this right now. Next Sunday, if everything goes right, we're going to be debuting nitro coffee in the cafe. Genuine nitro coffee. If you don't know what that is, you think I'm, I've lost my mind. But uh, if you do, you're going to be lined up because it's fantastic. So, so that's my thing. I don't know what Nehemiah... Maybe Nehemiah was a coffee guy. Maybe he was into rugs. Persian rugs, get it? He for sure knew his wine... Maybe he raced camels. Persia was big on perfume. Maybe he dabbled in apothecary and uh, had a perfumery in his bedroom. Music was huge. Maybe he was in a garage band playing cymbals or timpani. But whatever it is, at this point in his life, Jerusalem occupied his heart so much that prayer and fasting took priority over everything else. Now, we're not saying that you can't do any of these other things. And a lot of times the message comes across from a pulpit as if, oh, you have a hobby, but you're not spending enough time with Jesus. Where's your burden? Where's your passion for Jesus? Pastor Gene, you like coffee. Would you be willing to get rid of all of your coffee makers to serve Jesus? (laughs) The idea is that you're burdened. Now, you're burdened remembering that Jesus said his burden was light. So, he carries it with us. It isn't, therefore, a drag. You don't go around and say, oh, I'm just so burdened. It isn't a heavy, crushing weight. It's more like at that point in your life, your heart becomes so full with what God has put on it, you just don't have time or room for these other things. You don't give them up to be more godly. You just don't have time for them. They're not your focus for a time or maybe for the rest of your life. It just depends on what God has for you. And one of the things that always accompanies burdens is a new awareness of the ugliness of sin, both yours and that of others, and that's why we see Nehemiah confessing. Then in verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. With these words, Nehemiah was recalling the reason Israel had been taken captive and exiled to Babylon. God's covenant with Israel was both unconditional and conditional. Things like his promise that he would make of them a great nation from whom the Savior of the world would be born, that's an unconditional promise. Jesus is going to come from Israel, God said, and nothing can change that. No amount of your disobedience is going to change that. However, whether or not the Jews would be physically blessed in their land, that was conditional on their obedience And we find them here kicked out of the land as a discipline by God and now being regathered. So then verse 8, remember I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. 
Nehemiah, like Daniel, understood the times in which he was living. God was keeping his promises to regather his special people to their land. The temple had been rebuilt, but there was still work to be done, and the remnant needed help. I wonder when in the over 100 days that he prayed, Nehemiah understood that he would be the answer to his own prayers. Often a believer will be burdened for some mission or missionary and will marvel that others are not so burdened. It's usually an indication that God is wanting you to do something about it. Most, we love it around here. People come and it's kind of an inside joke, but it's a truism. People will come and they say, hey, I have a, you know, a real burden for this. And they'll line something out and we'll say, start smiling and say, hey, you should do that. Well, I don't really have the ability. Then you should do it all the more because God doesn't want your ability. He wants your inability. Are you available? Oh, wait a minute. You are available because you belong to the Lord. You know, it's that kind of a thing. And so, I mean, do you realize how many thousands or tens of thousands of missionaries and missions and different programs and plans and things that we could do? You have to be burdened. And we can't all have the same burden. And it's okay, because then we can accomplish a lot more for the Lord. Verse 10, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. I I don't know, reading this, I couldn't help but think of modern Israel. I know it's not in the context, but Golly, scattered all over the world since Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed in the first century, the second temple we're reading about. God has once again, by his great power and by his strong hand, brought his nation back into the land. The existence of Israel is the fulfillment of prophecy, and it is nothing if it is not miraculous. Israel and the church, you know, are two separate entities. We too are beloved by God, but our destiny is very different from Israel's. Jesus is coming in the clouds. He'll resurrect the dead in Christ of the church age. He'll rapture believers who are alive at his coming. At some point after the rapture, the Jews in Israel are going to sign a seven-year peace accord with the world leader who will turn out to be the Antichrist. In the last half of the Great Tribulation, Israel will be persecuted but preserved by God miraculously. They'll receive their Messiah at his return with his church from heaven to establish a 1,000-year kingdom to be ruled from where else? Jerusalem. And so that's uh, the plan that God is on right now. Verse 11, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. Nehemiah wanted God to burden others in the same way he had burdened him, but he left it to the Lord. He asked the Lord to do. It's like praying for, uh, to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. You don't go out and necessarily recruit them yourself. You want God to move on a person's heart. And this is one reason why we don't put burdens on you, or at least I hope we don't. If we do, I'd like to know. We don't try and guilt you into giving, for example, or into serving. We've never had a Sunday where I come in and I say, I had, I had a message on Nehemiah all planned for you, but God's put something on my heart that I think you need to hear, and it's about tithing and how you're not doing it. Let's go to these Old Testament scriptures that talk about tithing that have nothing to do with us in the church age but seem really cool. And, you know, we we try not to do that. I hope we don't do that. I hope we never do that. Uh, Because what we would rather do is present Jesus Christ as the risen Lord and grace and mercy, and then he works on our hearts. And if you don't want to give to him, there's a problem between you and him, not between me and you. Uh, And and so we want to leave it at that level. Nehemiah is going to have a four-month wait, as I said. 
Some Bible characters have little or no weight. Others wait for decades or sometimes a lifetime to be used. God knows how much preparation you and I need. Don McClure calls it weight training, W-A-I-T, and, and the Lord's preparation for us. And depending on the task and the heart, it could be seconds, hey, go talk to that guy, or it could be years before you are moved into the ministry that God has for you. Wait on the Lord. Verse 11, and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Wow, he waited till the very last words to tell us what a prominent guy he was because, according to one source, and I quote, originally the function of a cupbearer was to taste either for quality or for poison or for both, carry and serve wine to his master. In a case like that of Nehemiah, a cupbearer for royalty, not just a personal servant, but also a trusted confidant and advisor. Thus, it was an office of great responsibility, of power and honor in the Persian Empire. And so Nehemiah, he knew that he was in the right place, but he waited for the right time, trusting in God's timing. And we'll see that timing as we begin chapter two. If you are in Christ, you are in the right place. In many cases, it's already the right time to serve. As I said earlier, we ought to see needs and meet them wherever they are, in homes and churches and communities. We, you know, if God puts something on your heart, you, you don't need to have some special revelation to be a, a daily Christian. But in other cases, in special cases, God will seriously burden you. He ignores your complaints of inability. He picks you because of it so that in your weakness, he will be glorified. And remember, again, if you are in Christ... Jesus assumes your availability. There shouldn't be a conversation with the Lord ever about whether you're available or not. You are, because you were bought out of slavery at a great price, the blood of Jesus Christ, so that you could serve him. And and in Romans, we see that that is the reasonable thing a person would do who knows the Lord, serve them. In fact, you should be anxious to do it. The next superhero film is going to be in theater soon. It's about a young boy, Billy Batson, transforming into a full-grown superhero by saying the word Shazam. See, I knew you knew that. You're being transformed daily into the image of your Savior, Jesus Christ, until one day we will awaken his likeness, the Bible says. We ought to be ready to say these words, here am I, Lord, send me. Let's pray.